0: Before we start, I just wanted to let you know that you can become a paid subscriber of Lekka on Substack, Patreon or Apple Podcasts and you'll get access to exclusive content to hear and read. Subscriptions really help support Lekka, so if you're in a position to do that and you'd like to, head to LekkaPodcast.com forward slash support to find out more. This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This month on The Lecker Book Club. National Dish by Anja von Bremsen. Conversations around food often rightly touch on attribution, ownership and identity, especially when it comes to certain dishes. But this subject is so, so complicated. And many dishes and foods that we consider to be deeply entrenched within a country's culinary history and culture are no more than PR exercises dreamed up a few decades ago. In National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home, anne Bremsen explores whether we can find nationhood on a plate and what it says about us that we're so obsessed with looking for it there.
1: This book very much was about listening. It was Searching for Home, which is in the subtitle. Yes, to some extent for myself, but I wanted to see how other people perceived it.
0: I loved this book. It's fascinating and surprising, but also Anya is just such a great, dynamic writer that you feel like you're on the road with her. Party hopping at the Semena Santa in Seville, in the boardroom of an instant ramen company in Tokyo, learning to roll out the perfect pizza dough in Naples, drinking midday mezcal in Oaxaca. Anya and I spoke via video call a couple of weeks back, coincidentally on the day the book came out in the UK, and we talked about all of the above and much more when it comes to the thorny issue of The National Dish. Anya, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say, first of all, how much I loved National Dish. It's such a great book. It's so interesting and I learned so much from it but it's also just incredibly fun like it's a really enjoyable book to read and I feel like I came out of it wanting to go on holiday with you because I just feel like you must be a really enjoyable person to go and eat new things and travel to new places with so first of all thank you very much for writing it and can I ask you as a kind of starter question what drew you to the idea of the national dish in the first place? It's
1: actually something that I've been thinking about for quite a while because uh, my career in food is quite accidental. I was a concert pianist and then I had a hand injury. I had a hand injury. I was looking for something to do. I translated a cookbook from Italian and I thought, oh, I should write my own. And my ever first cookbook was called Please to the Table subtitled, unfortunately, The Russian Cookbook, but in fact it was Mm -hmm. about the cuisines of the former Soviet empire, all the different republics, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Georgia, which are all now independent countries. But Mm -hmm. as the book came out in 1990, the Soviet Union went bust. And these former republics of an empire became independent countries. And uh, over the years, I literally watched in real time as they established their national canons, their national histories, and their national cuisines. So it just made me realize how recent this some of this nation building is and often mm-hmm. how constructed. And I've been thinking about this ever since. And uh, now, in the age of this intense globalization, uh, what is a national cuisine? What is a national dish? On the one hand, the world is becoming more and more same. You can eat ramen, instant ramen in remote Andean or Mexican indigenous villages, or you can have sushi at any swishy place from Istanbul to Dubai to wherever. At the same time, as kind of the uh, other side of the coin, our compulsion to tie food to place, to search out the local, the so-called authentic, is stronger than ever in response to this globalization. So I thought it would be a really good time explore this through food, because food is a subject that tells us so much about so many things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that point about it being a particularly sort of pertinent thing at this particular moment is something that really struck me when reading it, because I think it really kind of sits so fascinatingly alongside conversations which are you know particularly like really ongoing in the kind of British food media but I think like elsewhere in the English speaking food media world I couldn't speak to like any any other medias but um the idea of kind of ownership attribution appropriation and it's just all everything is so blurred so you think that it's because of this globalization that this kind of desire and need to attribute things do you think that's the main reason for it? Or do you have any other theories about why it might be the case at this particular moment in time?
1: I think nationalism has been around for a long time, as long as nations have been with us. And this kind of proprietary, uh, patriotic feelings are stoked whenever a nation is in trouble, for instance, such as what's happening with the war in Ukraine, for example. Mm. So there are many reasons for that. And it's been around. It's just telling stories through food, it's actually quite recent. I mean, food has always been an important part of the narrative, but in the so-called food writing space, in the intellectual space, food used to be something you know for ladies who write cookbooks, right? And now we have serious <laughs> right. scholars and serious writers examining it to look at other phenomena. So um, because of the media because of uh, social media, because food is always with us on TikTok, on Instagram. We finally realize how many stories we can tell through food.
0: Yeah, totally. It's actually, I saw a TikTok the other day that really reminded me of this book, and it was somebody breaking down the idea of pad Thai as a national dish and how it was, that was invented as a marketing tool by the Thai government as well, which I had no idea about. So I feel like, yeah, you're right. There's just this kind of culture of storytelling in all these different forms and that's yeah really exciting and it's a really good sort of moment to bring this to light.
1: To go back to your question about cultural appropriation the reason Mm. is we're hearing about it so much is because we're finally paying attention to racial injustice to Mm -hmm. power struggles Uh, and again food is such an interesting way through an interesting lens through which to talk about it but at this point I feel that these phrases have been so overused that I feel that it would be maybe useful to talk about racial injustice directly, as opposed to saying, well, he appropriated my mafongo or my sushi yeah. or whatever. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of almost becoming meaningless uh, at this point. And I think the only thing that's going to really change the world effect change is political action, Yeah, uh, is political engagement. And I always joke for if there was a donate button every time we use the word cultural appropriation, the phrase, it might have been more helpful. We, we really need to stay <laughs> yeah. engaged and we can't just kind of uh, disassociate ourselves just because we use these trendy terms.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's, yeah, that's such a good point because, the uh, yeah, when you put it in kind of more blunt terms, we are talking about racial injustice and I think people can pussyfoot foot around that issue a bit. So, yeah, I think that's such a good point. Uh, how did you go about... Uh, narrowing down which dishes to include in the book.
1: Well, that was quite difficult because, as you can imagine, every country has its own national dish. There is the aforementioned pad <laughs> thai, uh, there's feijoada Brazil, and all these dishes tell important stories. I didn't want to be a total neophyte. I wanted to go back to places that I've researched before, that I visited, where I had contacts. And I also wanted to look at foods that are truly iconic and everyone can relate to. So pizza in Naples, Natural choice. In Japan, ramen, you know, something that everyone knows, everyone cooks from this packet, rehydrates, as well as rice, boiled rice, another cornerstone of Japanese diet. I wanted to look at tapas in Spain because it's such an important way of not just eating but socializing. Small bites, little plates to share. They brought down the tyranny of the white tablecloth Uh, of the French. (laughs) Yeah. I started in France because that's where an explicitly nationalistic discourse about food started. It's a culture that gave us terms like chef and gastronomy. It's where the restaurant was invented, believe it or not. It didn't exist in its current form in the 1760s, sauces, and the great self-importance and pomposity and the idea that food was something uniquely French, we had to examine this. And as my French dish, I chose pot à feu, which translates as pot on a fire and essentially is a boiled dinner. But it's really been consciously elevated to the status of a national dish. Then I go to Mexico and I examine the corn maize tortilla and the female indigenous labor behind it, Mm -hmm. as well as mole, which is this complicated, multi-ingredient stew that contains elements from Spain from the old country and as well as indigenous elements. And it kind of represents what the Mexicans call mestizaje, the fusion of these elements in national identity. And because I have a home in Istanbul, I look at meze, another important small place tradition, and how that reflects the complicated multicultural Ottoman past because Ottoman Empire dominated so much of the world. Mm. But it's been replaced in Turkey and other countries with nation states and a different definition of identity. And then I finally end in Ukraine with Ukrainian borsh.
0: It's such a journey around around the world, really. I mean, that's kind of the subtitle of the book. But, but yeah, so many fascinating stories. I think one of the things that really struck me in the opening chapter in France, and this is a theme that I feel like comes up again and again in the book, it's almost like the tension between the myth and the romantic nature of this national dish, but then the reality of what people are eating and cooking. Um, And I think it's like the French plat préféré is, is couscous. And there's almost like a similar tension in Japan with this kind of really elevated ritualized idea of Japanese meals and the kind of construct of rice and the dishes alongside it. And then the national reliance and obsession with convenience stores. And I just wondered if that was that tension, was, were you aware of that kind of, I don't even know if tension is the right word, but were you aware of those two things coexisting? And was that something you wanted to kind of look at in the book?
1: I was aware in part, but not to which extent It's actually the dominating, the dominant reality. In Japan, for instance, yes, I knew that people had globalized palates and they had access to everything, but I wasn't aware that when you talk to a Japanese person and you talk about McDonald's, which is McDo, they tell you, oh, it's actually Japanese. (laughs) I wasn't aware, for instance, how drastically declining the rice consumption is. So, on the Mm -hmm. one hand, it's a cornerstone of washuku this traditional Japanese meal that got UNESCO status and that Japanese are very proud of. On the other hand, no one wants to eat rice anymore. Uh, So, yeah, when you look, I hadn't looked at the hard statistics before I started researching this book, and the statistics are incredible. I mean, people are turning away from their traditional diets because, frankly, there's so much choice. In Japan, they're obsessed with bread, shokupan, right, as well as rice, as well as so many other things. We just have so much choice. And it's not always the old grandma dish that we turn to, mm. even though we might be proud of it, and even though we might serve it for a holiday, and we have a sentimental, uh, nostalgic attachment to it.
0: Yeah, I think nostalgia just is the thing that sort of always creeps into it. And yeah, I kind of, I, I don't know how I feel about it in lots of ways, because I think I mean I'm English so we have a complicated relationship with the idea of the national dish because our food culture is so like I guess fractured is maybe the word and we have national dishes but they are um, in the example of maybe fish and chips and chicken tikka masala they're the products of migration in themselves which is you know really interesting in and of itself and maybe reflective of like what England and its other nations within the United Kingdom did in the past but In terms of the food that I eat and cook at home, I don't think they have any relation to any idea of nationalism because, yeah, it is very globalised. In terms of what happened within the domestic sphere and then what happened within, I guess, outside of that, whether that's within restaurants or within kind of policy, do you think there's always a bit of a disconnect with those two environments in terms of how a nation views its cooking? or it's eating
1: it's hard to tell i think you have to go nation by nation and moment sure. by moment uh, what the other thing that struck me as i was researching the book is how transactional how shifting and how fluid these things can be mm. uh, so there's there are no yes or no answers to these complicated conceptual questions sometimes these patriotisms are heightened by situation as we see in Ukraine with the war, for example. Yeah. Maybe the Ukrainians were craving sushi and ramen and pizza, but now they're all united behind Borscht because it's a symbol of resistance for them. Identities as well are extremely transactional. I have this uh, very funny scene in the Paris chapter about Pot where I go to a Moroccan butcher, a Maghrebi boucherie mm. In a multicultural neighborhood in Paris, and I ask for meats for a pot-au-feu, the guy, you know, proudly just puts, you know, the entire classic selection, and I'm saying, well, I actually want something different because it's from a nineteenth century cookbook. And these people who just before were talking in Berber and in Arabic and in broken French, and they were bashing Paris and saying, like, what a horrible place it was. They're all suddenly looking at me, all these, you know, women in headscarves, you know, Berber men. And they say, but Madame, this is not a pot à feu. Do you know what French national patrimony is? And I'm like, oh, my God, these people just like two minutes ago hated everything here. But now I offended them. I am the intruder. And they're defending French. Culinary patrimony. So there you go. I mean, who and who am I? Again, that Borscht episode really brought home my own sort of existential homelessness. Because I was someone from Moscow who speaks Russian, who thinks in Russian, but I am so opposed to what Putin has done. And I just so loathe everything about Russia. I I don't want to have anything to do with that place anymore. I don't want to ever go back to Moscow.
0: Yeah, of course. At what point did you realize that the borscht, the epilogue where you consider the Ukrainian dish, at what point did you realize that was how the book had to end? Unfortunately,
1: at the point where the war started. Uh, Mm. Because as I was finishing a book, I had something else in mind. I wanted to make Thanksgiving, which is a classic American meal, in my very multicultural neighborhood where 160 languages are spoken. So I thought, wow, it would be cool to go and and just interview all these people from different countries what Thanksgiving means to them as Mm. an invented tradition. But unfortunately, then the war broke out and a huge pot of borscht sat in my fridge. It was made by my mom and it kind of seemed very tragically, where I had to end the book. I mean, it's like one chapter of the book I wish I didn't have to write.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But it is at the same time so important. Like, obviously, it's tragic that it has to be written. But, And I think that is another example of the constant shifting of the importance of, yeah, I guess, finding that solidarity and finding that nationhood in whatever form that might exist for you through food. Um, yeah, I thought it was really moving. Um, seeing a situation that is still ongoing. Yeah, this idea of kind of constant evolution and shifting was so yeah, so interesting because that, that could look like something really huge, like you know, huge global event like the the Russia-Ukraine war, or it could look like the Spanish government changing the legislation about how their iberico pigs can be fed. Did you ever get a sense in the research and writing of this book, like where we might be going with this idea? Is there any sense of like what the national dish of the future might look like? Do you think we will have a completely different conception of what that means in, I don't know, 20, 50 years? Like I realise this is a very different, difficult question, but I think the idea has changed so much in very recent times. I'd love to know if you ever got a sense of what it might look like.
1: I can only tell you what happened in the last... Five, ten years, which is on mm. the one hand the intensification of globalization and the erasure of borders and uh, of national identities because everything is so digitalized. And on the other hand, the intensification of nationalism because I think it's a natural, almost a natural reaction to protect mm. what we think is our identity, to protect our roots. I mean, the populist dictators that unfortunately are on the rise, you know, the Putins, the Bolsonaros, the Trumps are stalking these feelings. But I think whatever the dish of the future is, is going to be virtual. If we have a future <laughs> at all, unfortunately, as this planet, we've just had the hottest right. summer on record. I mean, as as I talked to you, we are uh, almost 40 degrees, over 40 degrees here in New York in September.
0: Yeah, that that was something that Did strike me, uh, I mean, I guess strikes me generally when it comes to food writing and thinking about it, that does it all seem a little bit futile in the idea of whether we'll even be able to eat a lot of the things that we currently eat in even five years. Did this book feel like an act of preservation in that sense? Was that something that was on your mind when you were writing it?
1: Not exactly. I think it's a chronicle of what people are saying. Mm. It's a snapshot of a moment now, am I for or against nationalism? I mean, I I came into this project as as an extreme cosmopolitan who was very anti-nationalist because precisely I was seeing all these populist dictators, all the ugly sides of nationalism. But Mm -hmm. I came out of it with respect, having listened to so many people, with respect for people's ideas of who they are whether I agree with them or not. You know, this this book very much was about listening. It was Searching for Home, which is in the subtitle. Yes, to some extent for myself, but I wanted to see how other people perceived it. Politics were changing. In Spain, for instance, this horrible, toxic populist party, Vox, was gaining more and more popularity. And they were literally about, you know, bringing back the Catholic Reconquista and Isabella and Ferdinand and Inquisition. Uh, but mm. but now recently they lost seats. So these, these these things are very fast. They move too fast mm. for um, anyone to be able to predict anything. And uh, yeah the world is so unexpected. Who could have envisaged that will be locked down in a pandemic? And the pandemic also, brought forth interesting things about nationalism on one hand you had this closed borders you had vaccine nationalism you had this is mine and this is yours on the other hand you had unprecedented international cooperation in creating vaccines mm. you had this stunning rise of digital commerce across you know across mm. the globe because you couldn't travel so again mm. it goes both ways And also you had this huge global trend of sourdough baking, right? So like the entire world was posting their mason jars of starters, you know, bubbling away. It was like suddenly it's like everyone was eating the same thing. Or at least, yeah. you know, the hipster the hipster con- contingent, right?
0: Yeah, a certain type of person who exists, I guess, all over the world was eating a certain type of thing. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because um, on a separate project, I've been looking at, yeah, sourdough bread, essentially. But the homogenization of certain types of sourdough bread, which I guess is sort of also relevant to this conversation, because it's kind of a like an almost like conflict between people have this very specific idea about what a sourdough loaf looks like. And that is essentially, you know, the kind of tartine, like San Francisco white loaf. But then you have the idea about, well, what flowers, what wheats, what grains do you actually grow in your country? And moving forward, how can farmers grow what's good for them, that's good for the soil, what's good for us? So you kind of have this, yeah, it's a good example, I think, because... There's this tension between what people want and what they see other people eating because of globalization and you know being able to access anywhere in the world instantly, and then actually, um, yeah, the idea of place and geography and I like the um, the kind of mention of the the European concept of terroir in the context of the Japanese sake producers, and I thought that was super interesting and I didn't actually know that that idea of terroir was was European. Because I guess I've seen it in so many other contexts. No, it was
1: the French French articulated, they had the word. They first articulated this, you know, since the 17th and 18th century. It's a very, f- yeah. not just European, it's a very French concept that's been uh, adopted uh, and borrowed right. everywhere. But it is interesting what you say, that that kind of uh, extreme local war culture globally, in the end, is used to uh, produce something that is instantly recognizable, whether it's a tartine mm. loaf or a certain mm. beer, right? Craft brew. Mm. But yeah, it, it's uh, it's on the one hand very homogenous and in another way very specific to place. It's a good point, yeah.
0: In some ways, without even realizing it, it's very specific to place because you have your own cultural understanding of something that, yeah, someone else might not have. So yeah, it's so interesting.
1: Because of Instagram,
0: yeah, no, it, yeah, it really because is.
1: Because of social media, right?
0: Yeah. Something else that occurred to me when I was, I think it was particularly in the, maybe it was actually in the Spain chapter. And I thought of it because I'm, I went to San Sebastian earlier in the year and San Sebastian is... I think I've had more I had more recommendations from friends than anywhere else I'd ever been just um, as soon as I said I was going there I just had people sending me like endless lists of pincho bars and Michelin starred restaurants and it just become this real kind of touchstone for people who are interested in food like going on holiday and eating there and when I was there I um, met a friend who has a restaurant there and has lived there for quite a long time now and I just asked her I was like "Do the locals go to these places because when I was in there it seemed to be almost entirely tourists and she was like yeah not really um because they just they can't go there and have a relaxing drink anymore and it's that sort of really struck me this idea of almost the cult the food culture is like a theme park and I guess that sort of taps into the nostalgia element but it's almost like at that point are you preserving the culture or are you stagnating it I was reminded of it when you talked about cooking the museum piece of a French meal and just that idea of like, where does the line begin between preservation and then stagnation? I guess that's my point. Oh, pres-
1: preservation and kind of shameless, uh, you know, rampant commercialism. And how does that right, preserve right, anything? Right, exactly. And does yeah. It doesn't preserve anything. Yeah, no, culinary tourism is a very interesting subject and... Um, mm. Again, I don't have an answer. I think it's a little bit of both mm. because without the interest from abroad, a lot of these places maybe would have shut down. Yeah. But now that they are catering almost exclusively to foreigners, are they preserving something or are they changing it? Um, again, there's mm. no there's no good or bad. I mean, I'm not someone who essentializes culture and who says, well, it has to be this way and I want to be in a place where, you know, all the grandmas and grandpas are playing cards and having their you know fish soup whatever because i think that 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 idea is uh, also for, it's a touristic idea right it's it's uh, uh, right, us, yeah. us imposing our own ver- vision on on the world but uh, i'm not sure what the what the correct answer is i mean just <laughs> mm. try to choose places that are less uh, less uh, crowded no but i'm seeing it everywhere yeah. europe is just because of cheap flights yeah. because of airbnb you know because of this like huge global conglomerates, Yeah, it's completely changing the face of uh, of cities.
0: Yeah, and you're obviously, you know, you with living both in New York and Istanbul, I guess you see not both sides of the coin, but you kind of, like, Istanbul is a place that is, I mean, as New York is, but I think maybe in a slightly different way, Istanbul is a place that is, there is so much tourism there, and it must be such a presence do you feel like you have not a unique perspective, but did that that give you an insight that was useful in writing the book?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it helps to be from different places and to have different relations to places and have people that, to interview. But Istanbul, yeah, they, they've just finished a huge cruise port right near my house. And, you know, sometimes wow. you have three behemoth ships parked there a day, you know, just gorging people looking for a quote-unquote authentic Turkish experience and uh, yeah. all the local entrep- entrepreneurs, you know, happily obliging them and saying, yes, lady, course, lady, lady, yeah. lady, come to my kebab place.
0: <laughs> and, and who can blame them, you know? Obviously not. Yeah. You have to look yeah. at this
1: this way. I mean, for San Sebastián is a wealthy city. For yeah. places in Mexico and in so many other parts of the world, Africa, tourism is their only source of income. And can you yeah. blame them? And can you say it's a bad thing that they're actually earning a living feeding semi-fake food uh, to hungry travelers? It's uh, There's just so many ethical equations here. But we should be thinking about it. I think my book is an invitation yeah. to consider these issues. To, I don't have easy answers. Nobody does. But I think, again, food represents so many different things. It's a portal into culture, history, economics, race race relations, and so many other things.
0: Speaking of kind of the ethical, I guess, the ethical consideration when it comes to this idea of the national dish, that was something that was particularly present in, as you just mentioned, in the Mexican, in the Oaxacan chapter. And yeah, I was really struck by the idea of the labour ethics of indigenous female labour around the tortilla making, particularly in the context of kind of, there was an example you used where it was a a chef from a restaurant in Mexico City coming and buying the tortillas and then selling them in the restaurant at a price that the person that had made the tortilla could never have afforded. And yeah, it just, that just felt, there's something that felt so wrong about that, which is obviously a really obvious thing to say, but I guess there's an inevitability to it. (laughs) I don't
1: know. It's on one hand wrong. I mean, it's not, he wasn't buying the tortillas, he was buying the corn itself.
0: uh, Because you make
1: tortillas in place and there's this lady who made tamales and she was paid $20 a day to come and demonstrate in Mexico City. So on on the one hand, there's injustice. On the other hand, the association with the celebrity Mm -hmm. chefs and with other celebrity chefs and the attention of like whiter Mexico, uh, the whiter mestizo society to indigenous labor and to indigenous products. It's a good thing. Right, because without it, where would they be? And um, yeah, so again, it's 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 a two pronged uh, issue.
0: Yeah, but then yeah, it just it was, I think, so illuminating to me to realize the kind of almost invisible labor that goes into these dishes. You know, whether that's factory made ramen, instant ramen, or the production of nixtamalized maize for tortillas. Is that something you wanted to draw attention to as well?
1: Obviously, and the whole issue of gender. Because when we talk about national canons, a lot of them originate from the 19th century, and a lot of them is from men. I mean, think about French cuisine, like all these famous chefs, you know, the Escoffiers, the Karems, they kind of set out the canon. There was this famous gastronome called Kurnonsky who traveled around France, Cataloging all the French dishes, and he traveled, I think, in a Bugatti or, you know, Rolls Royce with a driver. Wow! And so, yeah, naturally, he included a lot of dishes with foie gras in them into the national canon, and only later yeah. comes the cuisine bourgeoise, which is from women. Yeah. In Italy, it's uh, Pellegrino Artusi, who writes the definitive. National Italian Book, Again, a rich white guy from the North, from the wealthy North. And yeah. his book basically in, in almost ignores the South, the mezzogiorno. So you have this kind of situation, but you know then later you have more attention being paid to women, but still, I mean, who are, especially in the global South, who are the people you know really going through the labor of making this food, and do acknowledge that labor? Besides just you know romanticizing, oh here's this beautiful lady you know let's take a you know snapshot of her making whatever backbreaking, just she's making yeah all these ethical considerations, race consideration, the indigenous labor that I wanted to highlight just so the next time we eat something not for us to feel guilty necessarily although in many cases mm. we should but something to be aware of because it makes food so much richer when it comes garnished with a narrative that tells us something important about the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the kind of, I guess, the conversations you've had so far about the book, have you been surprised by any, any of the reactions to it? Have there been any reactions to it that, I, yeah, I guess you didn't anticipate when you were writing it? No, I think, I think
1: some of these subjects are difficult. Some of the subjects mm. are, not to say explosive, but, you know, who owns a culture and mm. what I a white woman with all the privileges doing yes. writing about it so I addressed it as much as I could but uh, I am who I am I mean I came to the United States as a refugee from a very difficult place and this difficult place has become uglier since um, mm. so there's always a political story there it's about cultural sensitivity ultimately and I think I was extremely aware of all these issues, because as I was finishing the book and working on it, the whole racial thing exploded in the United States, all over the world. The pandemic happened, which exposed so many ugly things about us. So, yeah, one one can't disassociate it from from, uh, from what we eat.
0: Laka is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove thanks to my guest on this episode, Anja von Bremsen. National Dish is out now, published by Watt, an imprint of Pushkin Press. As part of the monthly Lecker Book Club, I'll be writing about the book over on the Lecker Substack and Patreon. And another reminder that you can sign up as a paid subscriber to support Lekka on Apple Podcasts, Patreon and also now on Substack. Links are in the show notes. And to any paid subscribers who are listening here, thank you so much for your continued support. Music on this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening.